Let's look to the Lord together. Join our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we seek you, Lord, in your word. We want your word to be magnified. And we want you to be known in this house and in our community. And we ask, O Lord, in the name of Jesus, guide us in your word. Open our hearts to what you have to say. Help me do uh, the best I can in you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. On one occasion, he was eating with them. Oh, I love it. We could just stop right there. The risen Christ, the resurrected Christ, in his incorruptible, immortal, spiritual body, he's body, soul, and spirit, And by the way, all Christians will be ultimately body, soul, and spirit when God raises their body from the grave. Or those who are still alive in this world will be transformed into the same kind of immortal, incorruptible, spiritual body that Jesus had when he was raised out of the grave. Hallelujah. And he's eating together with the disciples. How warm. How intimate. Sharing. God made us to eat together in fellowship. Praise God. Part of our home fellowship uh, program is eating dinners once per unit at least. More, oh, more or less once every couple months. One home fellowship leader suggested to me, we always give visitors when we, ha- when we eat together. Maybe we should eat together every week. I said, okay, your home fellowship could be the pilot program for that. Give it a shot. All right, let's read on. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. I'm in the New International Version this morning. The gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Praise God. This is a very important book of the Bible for us, the book of Acts. In the Gospels, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can hardly go a few verses before you see Jesus referred to. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And words like he, substituting for Jesus, but it's clear that it refers to Jesus and him and his and Christ and uh, one... um, way to refer to Jesus that is very common in the Gospels as Son of Man. And Jesus is referred to every few verses. He's, he's the one that we see the most. And, but then when we come into the book of Acts, it's a different pattern. Instead of seeing Jesus referred to quite so much, you all of a sudden see the Holy Spirit referred to. Now, Jesus is definitely referred to in the book of Acts, and he's referred to often, but the one we see in action, it's a story about the book of Acts is the record of the Holy Spirit who becomes the agent of God on the earth when Jesus leaves. Jesus leaves on page one. On page two, the Holy Spirit comes. Hallelujah. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned mentioned in the book of Acts again and again far more many times than any other book of the Bible and than any other book of the New Testament and in a higher concentration than any other book of the Bible. So he's just referred to again and again. For instance, the expression Holy Spirit is used 42 times in the book of Acts. 
far more times than any other book of the Bible. He is referred to as simply the Spirit, without the word holy, 11 more times. And the book of Acts is very important to us because it acts as the bridge between the four Gospels and us. That is the bridge. The, the book of Acts is showing us how to carry on. Now that Jesus has ascended in the clouds and taken his seat at the right hand of the Father in heaven, glory to God, the book of Acts shows us how to carry on. It doesn't tell us how to carry on directly like Oh, many of the letters of the Apostle Paul do, and the other letters in the New Testament, it shows us how to carry on. Now, if somebody is trying to teach you a skill or show you how, or, or you want to, you know, put together a, a new hammock that, so you can enjoy it uh, for the summer, I'm, a lot of us would um, prefer to watch the YouTube video on how to put the hammock together rather than read the instructions that were probably written in China and have words missing. And In other words, we'll, we'll say, I prefer you show me how to do it rather than tell me how to do it. And the book of Acts does just that. God knows us. He knows us, he knows what we need, and he shows us how to carry on in Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. And how do we carry on with the Holy Spirit? Hallelujah. I loved it that Brother Bob, our founding pastor here at Living Word Church, he would read uh, the title to the book of Acts, and in our Bibles it says, The Acts of the Apostles. And knowing that that was not really, that title for the book was not really part of the infallible word of God, but it was added by editors at a later date, he felt free to change that a little bit. And he said, it should be called the Acts of the Holy Ghost, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I love that. Praise God, don't you? And in verse 5, we see that the Holy Spirit is the gift that the Father has promised. Now, the disciples that were present with Jesus at this meal certainly listened to Jesus. They had great respect for Jesus. You know, when when Jesus spoke, they listened. No doubt about it. And they heard what the Father intended to do And they heard what Jesus said would happen. But actually, they wanted to move on to a different subject. Sort of like, you know, okay, got got that, Lord, got that. Now let's talk about something else. It wasn't like this. Done. You said it, Jesus, done. That's all we need to know. Enough. We've got enough now. Go to Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. Got it. We don't need any more than that. No, they wanted more. They wanted to move on to another subject. So verse 6 says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They changed the subject so quickly that we might wonder if they really understand or appreciate what Jesus was telling them about the gift that was promised by the Father. Israel had not had a Davidic king, a king after the line of David. This would be especially important in the region that they were currently in, Judea. That was the home of King David. In Jerusalem, Jerusalem was King David's honored, hallowed, protected capital of of the nation over which he ruled. 
And so they're there. They're geographically, they're right in the center of David's kingdom. And, but they hadn't had a Davidic king since the first fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Solomon's temple approximately 600 years before this conversation. 600 years without a Davidic king where they could read in multiple places in the word of God how God promised an eternal, a forever Davidic throne. Well, they had to reinterpret their thinking. Okay, it's eternal. It's forever. But we have in here a intermission. A period here without a Davidic king. And they expected Jesus to fulfill the promise of an eternal Davidic king. And when they say, restore the kingdom to Israel, they're talking about a Davidic kingdom. Well, Jesus was fulfilling the promises of a Davidic kingdom because he ascended he, well, in the next verses, he would ascend into heaven and take his seat at the right hand of the throne of God in honor and in fulfillment of the, of the promises of God. Several places in the Old Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1, for instance, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, fulfilling the promises of a Davidic kingdom, but the promise of a Davidic king ruling over the whole earth is yet to be seen. And that's what they were asking about. You're going to go for it. Right now, Jesus, right now, the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom and the restoration of Israel on the face of the earth right now. Is that next on your agenda? Because this promise of God, this covenant called the Davidic covenant, has not been fulfilled or consummated. The fact is that Jesus Christ, as King of kings and Lord of lords, has yet to come back again, but he will. He will come back again, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will establish his rule and his reign on the face of this earth. He'll reign according to Revelation chapter 20. It says it six times there, a thousand years on the earth. Well, what was the situation? Let me talk about the situation that they were in when they asked this question and why this question was haunting them. And why when Jesus gave them clear instructions of what to do next, they were not really satisfied with those instructions. They wanted more. They wanted more. I'll tell you why. It's because Rome not only was a, a government that ruled over Judah and Jerusalem and all of the uh, Holy Land as a government, but also there was something that we could refer to as an imperial cult. This is, this is very well known. I didn't invent this term. The imperial cult was the elevation of some Caesars, some of the emperors of Rome, in the mind and practice of the Roman Empire, they were elevated to the status of God. For instance, Julius Caesar, though he never became the emperor of the Roman Empire, he was elevated with temples, sacrifices, statues, priesthoods. Here and there, throughout the Roman Empire, he was elevated to the status of God. So was his adopted son, Octavian, who when he became the very first emperor of Rome, took on the name Augustus. He also was elevated after his death. This was the typical 
practice in Rome that if a Caesar was thought to be worthy, he would be elevated after his death to the status of a god. I don't want to make it sound like this was something that was um, forced upon the people from the city of Rome in Italy. There was a wide variety of practice when it came to the imperial cult, that is, the worship of Caesars. It was a very local decision. It was uh, practiced uh, more or less, depending, depending on what the local authorities wanted to do. It was practiced in the city of Rome, but it was more intensely practiced in some other Roman uh, cities and provinces than it was even in Rome. It was not practiced uniformly in Italy, but it existed. The imperial cult, the honor of the Caesar as a god. I'll give you an example of an inscription that dates to just a few years away from the birth of Christ. And it refers to the Roman Caesar Augustus. This is uh, called the calendar inscription of Priene or the Asian calendar inscription. I quote from it, quote, Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. Now this was uh, in the area of Smyrna, one of the seven churches, the seven cities of, uh, of the seven churches of Asia we receive referred to in the book of Revelation. And it was a proposal to change the Roman calendar so that the first day of the year coincided with Augustus' birthday. Augustus, he was dead at that time. The Greek term, good news, which was often associated with the coming of a new Caesar. It was used to herald the arrival of a kingdom, the reign of a king who would bring war to an end so that all the people of the world who surrendered and pledged their allegiance to that king would be granted salvation from destruction. The calendar inscription that I read to you is quite a bit more lengthy than that. I just kind of read you a, a, a part that would make the point I'd like to make. Said that the coming of Augustus, the man Augustus, to this world was the coming of good news to the world. A special birth on a special day to bring the end of war and peace to mankind. Some Christian historians have compared this calendar announcement and the use by the Latin lang in the Latin language and the Greek language of good news. They've compared it to the way that the Gospel of Mark starts, the Gospel that was especially written to a Roman audience. And it begins this way, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Augustus and many of the other Caesars were called either sons of God or in Latin, more specifically, sons of a deified one. 
See, Augustus was the son of Julius Caesar, who had been honored and raised as a god. Well, what does this have to do with these disciples around Jesus saying, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? It has this to do with them. They found very offensive the imperial cult of Rome. And they didn't want it to go on. They didn't want Julius Caesar or Augustus or the other Caesars that came after them. The Caesar at the time that Jesus is is resurrected, that Caesar was Tiberius. They didn't want these guys elevated, that their birth would be called good news to the world. That was offensive to them. They didn't like tolerating it. They didn't like tolerating the the, uh, offensive uh, elevation of human beings to the status of God. They didn't like all these temples that were scattered around. The Apostle Paul, certainly in his travels through Asia and to Philippi, which was called a little Rome, very very, uh, established in the Roman culture was Philippi, The Apostle Paul would confront this imperial cult in many of his travels. And in fact, some of the things he said, you would think, created a great risk for him as he said, the name above every name is Jesus Christ. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is, what's the next word? Lord. That Jesus is Lord. Read into that as much as you want. Not Augustus. Not Julius Caesar. Those are not the names above every name. Those are not the names to which every knee will bow. Those are not the names that have been elevated to be the hero of heaven. And it is Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. Well... Jesus' followers didn't like this, especially in Jerusalem, David's capital. Take back Israel. Take back Jerusalem. That's what they wanted Jesus to do. Oh, well. Jesus knew that the restoration would come he didn't say, guys, guys, girls, you know, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? You're way off base. He didn't say that to them. There would be a restoration of Israel. And there would be a coming of the Davidic kingdom to, to the world, to rule the world. It would come. It just, their question was, now? Now? Is now the time? Wasn't that the question in verse 6? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And in verse 7, Jesus says to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus didn't want to change the subject. They wanted to change the subject and talk about the state talk about government, talk about Israel, talk about taking Israel back. They wanted to change the subject to, you might say, political, uh, the political realm. And Jesus said, guys, let's just stay right here. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Are you hearing me, brothers and sisters? Holy Spirit. Book of Acts. Bridge between the the account of Jesus Christ on this earth, the the bridge between Jesus' visitation to this earth and us. Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen? Look, the disciples gathered around Jesus, the Bible says, in verse 6, they gathered around him. They understood something that should not be reproved And that is that the most powerful man who ever lived was within an arm's reach of them. 
He could feed thousands with a few loaves of bread. He could walk on the water and command the storms to cease. He could tell the dead, come forth from your grave. The most powerful man who ever lived. And there he is right in front of them. Hallelujah. In an immortal, incorruptible flesh. What can we do with this guy? Dominate Jesus. Nuke him. Take back Israel. Guys, guys, Jesus says, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise from the Father. Who's in charge? Jesus answered the question. The Father's in charge. He's the ultimate boss. He's the initiator. Am I reading, the, am I reading this right? What do we mean when we say in charge? The Father's in charge. That is that the Father alone decides the timing of the story. The times and the seasons are in his, the NIV says, authority. It's the main reason why I chose the NIV this morning, because it uses the word authority for the Father, but power for the promise of the Father for the, for the followers of Jesus. Authority versus power. They're two different Greek words, actually, and the NIV kind of highlights that in their choice of English words. The word for authority is exousia, the Greek word exousia. The father alone is the boss. He has the authority kind of power. But what does Jesus say is going to happen? He admits or he accepts that he will complete the Davidic kingdom in time. But the timing of it is, belongs to the Father. It doesn't belong to Jesus even. It belongs to the Father. It doesn't belong to the followers of Jesus. It belongs to the Father. He has the exousia, the, the authority. What do we do? What's left for us to do? That's really what interests them. Okay, what's going to happen now? Jesus told them, go to the... Jerusalem, don't leave. Wait for the promise of the Father on high. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Okay, what do we do now? Yes, but what do we do now? Waiting doesn't sound like doing something, like something, like it's doing something sometimes, right? Okay, what do we do now? Wait. That sounds like doing nothing. But we know it wasn't doing nothing. When the promise of the Father came upon them, wow, stuff started to happen. Praise God. A lot of stuff started to happen. The kingdom of God started to visit this earth. Praise God. Well, we might say they're asking, okay, Lord, let's get practical now, though. Wait in, for the promise of the Father. Of course, none of them had ever seen the promise of the Father before. They didn't know exactly how that was going to come down. Let's get practical. Let's get specific. What does this have to do with me now, if you don't mind me asking? Jesus tells them, you're not out of the power picture here. Don't think that you're, you have no part in this picture of power. Because in verse 8, he says, but you will receive power. You see, they're question to him, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel, is a power kind of question. And Jesus wants to distinguish between kinds of power. There's exousia kind of power, that's authority. That's, who's, that's for the boss. God the Father has that. He's the boss. But you guys aren't left out of the power picture. There's another kind of power, and that is the Greek word dunamis, which is power of ability. Not power of authority, power of ability. 
You are going to get power of ability. You don't get power of authority. That's for the Father. You're going to get power of ability. He's throwing them hope. Wait for the promise of the Father. You are not written out of the power picture here. I don't want, I'm not telling you you should be weak. I'm going to tell you my mission up front this morning is to encourage you. The Lord does not want the church to be weak. But we're not in a place of authority. We're in a place of ability. The Holy Spirit gives us ability. Can I hear an amen? It's not power to rule the world. It's power to do the things that Jesus did. To do the mission of Jesus. To carry on in the mission. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and He has anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted, to preach the good year of the Lord, to help the blind to see and the lame to walk. That's what the Spirit of God has come upon me to do. And now the Spirit of God is going to come upon you to do it. Jesus has been very consistent about waiting for his kingdom, about waiting to fully restore the Davidic kingdom. Jesus is already king of the whole earth. He's already sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He's already the king of kings. He's already the Lord. In fact, David, a thousand years before, was already calling Jesus Lord. The one at the right hand of my Lord, he's my Lord. What, two lords? Exactly. But he has not yet restored the Davidic kingdom in this world. He will do that when he comes again. Can I hear an amen? Are you, are you uh, desiring for Jesus to come again? Do you want him to come again? Jesus has been quite consistent about his willingness to wait. For instance, go to John 18.36. The Gospel of John 18.36 It says here, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Now, it will be. That was the question in Acts chapter 1 that the disciples had. Now? Okay. It wasn't, it, it wasn't 10 days ago. It wasn't 40 days ago. How about now? Now? And Jesus said, guys, that's the Father's call. Am I reading it right? He says, my kingdom exists. He is implying that his kingdom exists. But it's not of this world. Not now it's not. This is a matter of timing. So Jesus' answer to the question, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? His answer to that is, it's not my call. Go to Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. John chapter 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, check this out, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am. 
The word he is added to make it sound like a more natural English sentence. The truth is, he said in Greek, ego eimi, I am. It is a theme in the Gospel of John. You know that, right? All you students of the Lord. And it associates Jesus with Jehovah. I am that I am. Jehovah says to Moses by the burning bush, right? And now we've got this human being who's saying, I am. But it's not just, I mean, if I said I am, you know what would happen? Nothing. But look what happens when Jesus says, I am. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? I like this repetition of the question. It's sort of like Jesus saying, what's the matter, boys? You lost your nerve? What are you all falling back for? He's got the power, doesn't he? The most powerful human being that ever lived on the face of the earth. And he's going to yield to them because it's God's will to yield to them. He is not going to yield to them because he's defeated or he's weak. It's God's will. Can I hear an amen? So he asked them again in verse 7, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, high priest's servant cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter didn't say, you know what, I'm going to cut that guy's ear off. I'll show him. What do you think he was, Mike Tyson biting his opponent's ear off? or Like Mike Tyson did in a championship boxing match? No, Peter was trying to take the guy's head off. And he missed. Malchus probably ducked. I would have. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. I mean, Peter must have had so much adrenaline going through him and so much emotion going through him, so much fear and, you know, that, what do they call it, the, the run or fight response. It's probably all mixing around inside his very human soul. And I'm, I'm thinking that Jesus had to break through his, uh, I, I forget what the policemen call it, the ulu loop, or is that, is that the right term? You have to kind of shock a person who's beside himself into, out, out of that state by being very forceful. I imagine that Jesus said, put the sword away! Break through Peter's Momentum. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Verse 12, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. Peter may have been very encouraged to swing that sword by two very recent developments. First of all, Jesus had just that very night one or two hours before, asked his followers if they had any weapons on them. He did that the night of the Passover supper, what we call the Last Supper. That very night, he asked his disciples, have you guys got any weapons? They, They check with each other, and among the 11 or 12 guys and any other extras that were part of their entourage, they found two swords. And Jesus said, enough. That's enough. Peter may have interpreted Jesus' question, do you have any weapons? He may have interpreted it like many of us often interpret things the Lord says in our, from our own bias. Peter might have heard, Are you guys ready to rumble? 
Jesus didn't say, are you guys ready to rumble? He said, do you have any weapons? For this fairly large group, they came up with two swords, which sounds to me like pretty meager protection for a group that size. And Jesus said, that's enough. That's sufficient. That's, a, that's all we need. Jesus didn't want his followers to be pushovers. He wanted them to have enough weaponry to be a deterrent to their opponents to just do with them whatever they wanted to do. But this certainly is not offensive weaponry. This is not domination weaponry. This is not, we will dominate you with our swords and our spears and our catapults and our trebuchets and our phalanxes and our, and our lines. Two swords, enough, guys. That's enough. He's not asking them, are you ready to rumble? It turns out what he's saying is, are you guys ready to go on the road for me? You're going to go on the road for me. You're going to take my message to the ends of the earth. And on your way there, it might pay off for you to have a bit of a defensive weaponry. It is not, are you ready to rumble? It's, are you ready to go on the road? But they weren't interpreting it the right way yet. Well, I'll give credit to Peter. In this sense, I could see where he would misunderstand. The second reason that he might misunderstand and get pretty excited about swinging that sword at Malchus is that when Jesus said, I am, the people who came to arrest him fell down. They fell back. It was, in a sense, violence. I mean, they physically fell back at the word of Jesus. I don't think anybody got hurt. You might think somebody did get hurt. Well, I don't know how either one of us would prove the case. But it was physical. It was physical. It was force. It was power. It was, in a measure of speaking, corporal. You know what I mean? Corporal. Physical. Physical force. So Peter might have been really encouraged by that. Okay, if he's going to start knocking people back, I'm going to jump in there and I'm going to start knocking people back too. If he's going to knock people down, I'm going to knock people down. I could see where Peter would get pretty enthused and excited about getting physical when Jesus knocked them back with his words. When Jesus asked them if they had any swords. But he was misunderstanding, wasn't he? One more time, brothers and sisters, the book of Acts is our bridge from the Gospels to us. It shows us how it's done. And here's how it's done. Be filled with God's Holy Spirit power and spread the news of Jesus and build the church into a powerful and influential entity. Don't make your first priority the overthrow of the imperial cult. Make your first priority the lifting up of Jesus Christ and the building of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, the church did not grow through institutional authority, through government support. We do not need institutions and governments and states to go to bat for us. In China, in in Eritrea, and some of the places where persecution of Christians is the worst in this world, the government says, oh, we like Christians. We just want you all to join the government-registered churches, and we will be there to protect you and support you. And the born-again say, not us. We don't need to hang off the government's breast. We are the church of Jesus Christ, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And it won't be long where there are more born-again Christians in China than there are in the United States of America. And I praise God for every one of them, don't you? 
I'd like to keep up with them. I'd like there to be more born again here in America too. They're making me jealous. I want to go to work and try to keep up. But they're not doing it because they're supported by Big Mama State. They're doing it because they're supported by the Holy Spirit. Read the book of Acts. The church might have been small. There were 120 Galileans in the upper room, but it has never been a weakling. The church has always been strong, and the Lord wants this church right here, Living Word Church, to be strong. The church did not hide under the shadow of Father Caesar. It did not hide under the shadow of Mother Rome. The church was made strong by the Spirit of God. They were honestly wondering, what do we do? What do we do now, Lord? You're leaving us. What do we do? You might also be wondering, what do we do? What do we at Living Word Church do? What do we Christians in Central New York, what do we actually do? At Living Word Church, we were building things, physical buildings and projects, almost nonstop for decades. We refurbished the bus garage into a high school. We cleaned up, uh, we, we built a, a sanctuary down the road, an auditorium, outfitted nursery rooms and so on. We built those. Then we, it was just a short time afterwards, we were building the high school. And then it was a short time afterwards, we were building the camp, putting in a water system, an electric system at camp. Sometimes, you know, folks with a new trailer, they want to site up a camp. And they say, yeah, but there's a, there's a two-inch in diameter tree there, and there's a three-incher there, and there's, and there's, oh, a big pile of ferns over there, and what do I do? The whole 135 acres was like that when we got it. You got to clean up a spot, get a spot cleaned up for yourself, got to put in a little sweat, and then we really feel ownership for it. Amen? And we built this building, and we we built and built. We built Christian Health, uh, amazing story of a group of brothers and sisters in this church pooling their resources, their monetary resources, their mental resources, and then this church redoing the whole roof in a day, strip off and put on a new roof in a day when the roof needed to be replaced, and then remodeled the whole uh, inside, and the Christian health has had to go to the bank for a for a, a, a loan, and the bank says, oh, we're going to consider that a brand new building. We're not going to consider it a 30- or 40-year-old building like it is. As far as we're concerned, that's a brand new building, and you're going to get the equity for a brand new building. Praise God. This church did that. We built and built and built and built. But now it seems like it's all built. What do we do? The school has been in operation for more than 40 years. Is the educational mission of our church in the bag? Well, let me tell you, scores of Christian children and Christian families are still going to public schools in central New York. Hundreds. We don't have to lighten up on our vetting procedures. You know, every, every student and every family is vetted. We don't just say, oh, you want to come to our school? Oh, you can come. Anybody who wants to come can come. It's not that way. We talk to them at great length before we allow their children to come in our school. And the families are glad of that vetting process because they want to go to a school that is truly Christian and not simply Christian in name. But there are so, the need is so great in central New York. Now, where will we put them? 
The school has exploded in its uh, number of population, bigger than it has ever been, and some of our classes have reached the limit so that people who want to put their children in their class have to go on a waiting list. Could it be that God, by his Spirit, will increase our facility so that we can serve more children who are being brainwashed by the devil in public schools. Is that okay with you? Just let those children go. Just let, just let them fall by the wayside. They, they, their parents are dumb and they're putting them in the public school. Let it, they're making their bed. Let them sleep, sleep in it. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like that's the way the Spirit of God talks to me. And the more filled I am with the Holy Ghost, the less he talks to me like that. Brothers and sisters, follow the logic. Would you follow the logic? We're Christians. We go to a solid, Holy Spirit-ordained church. I'll say it again. I don't think you heard me. We go to a Holy Spirit-ordained church. This church does not exist but by the hand of God and the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Follow the logic. Would you follow the logic? I'm 65 years old. Do I need vision? I've got some vision, and we're working on some things already. I got vision for an audacious, power-filled prayer night on Sunday nights. Audacious in claiming for the Lord his intervention in the lives of needy people. For the outpouring of the Spirit in our community. For a breakthrough among the unsaved and the hard-hearted. And that the best years of this church are ahead, not behind. Hallelujah. I got some vision. I got some. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us with ability. I have a vision for people sharing their testimonies of their freedom from sin and the breaking of their cycle of sin and their addiction and their depression and their anxiety and their being lost and their wandering. I'd like to see the Lord present more educational opportunity for those who have been oppressed generationally, generation after generation in the oppression of poverty. Education is a big element in getting out of the cycle of poverty. What can we do? What can we do about that? I'm going to make all those decisions. I'm going to make all those plans. I'm going to imagine all the answers. I may die any time now. I told Brother Ben this morning, if I die in church, make sure everybody celebrates. <laughs> That'll be so cool to die in church. Oh, man, have a Holy Ghost meeting. He said, well, I'll miss you. I said, well, get over it. How about support for children who come from broken homes? Is the need real in central New York? How about the poverty issue? How about the gun violence issue? Would you like to see the Lord make inroads to, to fix those problems in central New York? Oh, you live in your very comfortable suburbia, most of you. And we say Syracuse is one of the poorest communities in the nation, and you don't get it. Because you live in a pretty insulated and pretty polished neighborhood. But I want to tell you, as God has blessed you, this city has been left behind. And what does God want us to do? You want to say, well, what do I do? What, the church is already built. How about if you fill it? Fill it. How should the school grow? How should we address 
the medical needs of people whose only medical resource, their only answer is to go to the emergency room where their care is very insufficient. How about broaching this subject? Rigorous training for future Christian leaders. Rigorous training for future Christian leaders. Why should we do these things with the human powers of Caesar? Is Caesar God? Is the state God? Is the government God? Are big business institutions God? Are they, is, is uh, Micron God? Is Meta God? Is Google God? Or is the Father God, who has a son who's God, who sent his spirit who's God? Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not meant to be the ugly sister that the family loves because she's so sincere but pushes her into the shadow so that the company doesn't look at her too much. The church is meant to be powerful in Christ in the power that the Father has promised us. The church is a nation. The church of Jesus Christ is a nation. It's a nation without physical borders. The apostle Peter said, a holy nation, God's special possession, called to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are a holy nation intended by God to be strong, not weak. Intended by God to be filled with power, not weakness. Intended by God to grow. Grow in influence, absolutely. I'm not going to think of things for you to do. Then you do them and you carry on when I'm no longer able to help you in a substantive way. We need a new generation of Christian leaders to rise up who are filled with the promise of the Father. It is very plain to me where the logic of all of this takes us. A strong church can do a lot of good. But it's got to be strong, not with the, with the powers and devices of man. It's got to be strong with a promise from the Father. Let's not get off track and off subject. Let's remember to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's not be upset or, or dissatisfied while we wait sometimes for the Holy Spirit to move. It's very plain where the logic takes us. Help our very needy central New York. But we're going to need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to know the details. That's what you see in the book of Acts. The who, the where, the when. Preaching the gospel? Always. Conversions? Always. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature? Always. Rock-bottom Christianity. Bedrock Christianity. But how about all these other details about where we live? What will you do? What do we need right now? I'll tell you where it starts. Being filled with Holy Spirit power, not man's power. Dunamis power, the power to do. Oh, so many of you are just waiting it out until you die. I'm going to die a good and solid man or woman of faith. Well, I'll tell you, let's, let's occupy till he comes for you till he sends the death angel to snatch you out of this world and take you to before his throne. Let's occupy till he comes. Let's do business till he comes. Follow the logic. That's all you've got to do. Follow the implications of being a Christian who is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Follow the implications of being a powerful, strong church. Not the ugly sister in the shadow. 
but a strong church that is serving the Lord and doing things for Jesus Christ. If you want to come and seek the Lord now, for we only have a few minutes, we can, we can uh, take a little break this afternoon and come back tonight. But how about if you come, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you are empowered to carry on in His work, you can come and join us in the front right now.